The challenge, of course, with Ken Wilber's books is there is a requisite of a hundred other books or at least a dozen other books. If someone's interested in consciousness, eventually it leads to Ken Wilber. Tony Robbins, Marion Williamson, everybody basically says like Ken is the lighthouse. Ken, for instance, he's arguably the most brilliant human ever. To bring that back to Grace and Grip, it's really a story about love beyond life. Alex Gray had referred to it when he wrote the review about Grace and Grit. And there's a scene in Tree of Life. These two dinosaurs, they know each other from another existence. And they're like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I know you. That moment exists outside of the stream of time. That moment is transcendent. That moment is eternal. The movie Titanic. And I was like, never let go, Jack. Never let go. Like, she knows he's dying. But never let go outside of this. And that's, you know, what I use in Grace and Grit is I'll find you. I found you before and I'll find you again. I'm going to see you again. I'm going to find you through different eyes, in a different awareness, through a different experience. And I'm going to find you. When I first found out about you, Sebastian, was through watching the Ken Wilber movie, and I started digging into your stuff, then I found out you were into acting, and then you're sort of into fitness, and then you're into philosophy. So you have like a really broad and diverse spectrum. And then that's sort of why I wanted to reach out and get you on the show. I guess what has been your main focus or what's your current main focus at the moment? I know you're working on a movie, is that it? Because we're trying to schedule this in. First of all, I'm thrilled to be here, man. Thank you for that. And I saw, yeah, that you had had uh, Ken Wilber on and I was thrilled to see that. You know, I adore him and and he's impacted my life on such a profound level. You know, in terms of the different things that I, that I do, for me, they're all very much the same. Yeah, they're all about consciousness and they're all about storytelling. And so my history is really in psychology and philosophy and theater and these are all strongly interlinked, yeah. Uh, even, you know, Fritz Perls was the founder of Gestalt uh, psychology. And he was initially interested growing up in acting. And a lot of the classes and exercises that he took as an actor, he ended up applying yeah, to psychology. So even like the empty chair where you, you know, sit in another chair and you talk to your lover, or your father, or your sibling or whatever the thing is, and then you relate to that. Yeah. So you take it out here and you, you can look at it out here. And then, then you sit in the chair and take on the affect of those things, whether it's the emotion or the individual. And so I think that's indicative of the strong relationship between psychology and, and theater and film and acting and directing. In other words, they're closely interlinked storytelling because it's really about the expansion of identity. In other words, i.e. the expansion of perspectives, right? Like an exceptional actor really understands their place in the, in the piece. And a, and a director as well understands all the elements, not just the actors, but the setting, uh, the rooms, yeah, the um, makeup, the, you know, how everything is shot, the lenses, you know, the everything, the voice, the music, etc. And so I think that those tie together very strongly. Um, as a boy, I was very interested in psychology and philosophy and in meditative practices of transcendence. And so then the physicality, my fortune, I think, in um, the sort of world of fitness uh, was just peripheral. I was not a trainer or a coach or wanting to be in that. I never worked out kind of specifically to get a developed body. Um, that was a, a part of it, obviously, as a young boy. But it was just that I loved pushing myself to the limit. And then the byproduct of that was feeling and seeing my body change when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. And so that was a great positive reinforcement. But ultimately, it was still for me about storytelling, that it was about, wow, if I push myself to this limit, then something happens in me. And so then therefore in the world, and I think of storytelling as that, you know, that I, I think, well, 
if I have a skill set of being able to tell a story and I can do that in psychology or in meditation or in movies, yeah, in different in different facets of art, then I want to do that as uniquely uh, and penetrate culture and society as deep as, as possible. How does it work, Sebastian? Like, did you, do you own the movie? Did you get investors to come in? Does the studio own the movie? How does it work in the movie industry? Each movie is different, you know, so... Um, you know, in this particular case, it's made with private equity, and then the distributor ends up taking it over for a period. And then the, the subsidiary deals, like let's say with, you know, Netflix or Amazon or Apple, they own it for a period, or it's a, you know, a, a rental streaming service like Apple, where there's a split, you know, so it's complex. And it's also changing very radically right now as well. Does that mean like, I remember hearing TV shows like Friends every you know, they might have a five-year contract. Netflix might pay like a hundred million dollars to be able to have it on Netflix for five years. And after that, you go ahead and shop it and you can just infinitely do this forever. Yeah, it depends. Each, each project's different. You know, it's, it's like similar to a music catalog where someone will own it and you can own it outright or you can, you know, own it for a period. And each product is different because, you know, film is very interesting because it's like a book. You're melding art and business. Yeah, and so it's really understanding you know, what, you know, how is this valuable today? Who wants to consume this content? And will this content increase in value in the future? It's looked at like a business in the way art is in that way also. So like with this particular film, you know, because it's about Ken Wilber and because it's the only movie, you know, that really is a lot, is the, will be the gateway in years to come for his legacy, I, I would imagine. Um, you know, his, obviously his books are very thick and there's a, a requisite kind of vernacular to get into it, you know, at least uh, his thicker books. And so this is a very soft, uh, gentle intro uh, from an intellectual level, obviously, uh, that film. So I think it's going to have very, what we call in film, long legs. Yeah, that, that it'll be seen, it'll become more popular in years to come, i.e. like the Stephen Hawking film. If people don't read Stephen Hawking, it's not consequential. But if they're curious about who he is as somebody who shaped, um, you know, kind of thought in a particular way, then they will see the Stephen Hawking movie. And so and likewise, right, with Ken Wilber. Yeah. Do you go about creating movies that are sort of evergreen things that can sort of have longevity and it doesn't require a time and place and it can always be sort of relevant do i mm. is that the question um it depends you know each product's different there's a project <clears throat> i mean it's got to come from the heart because it's like you you know doing this podcast right it's you know, you want to find an audience and you want to be able to generate a, a revenue, you know, whether that's commercially or, you know, you know, by increasing viewership, but you've got to love it. Like you've got to love the content. You've got to love what you do. And I think, you know, the film is the same way. There's an organic quality to it where, you know, if somebody really is in it, that's more important than anything else, you know, because there are people who, you know, can spend millions and millions of dollars and still not get a movie made. Yeah. And movies fall apart all the time. Movies that are 50 or hundred million dollars. You know, there's this requisite of that I appreciate enormously about really uh, needing to love it, you know, with your, with your soul. And I think that like any art and like any business, but particularly with film, because it is such a strong intersection of art and business that um, it, it's very easy to tell, you know, when someone is in it, you know, fully. And those are the people that are ideal to collaborate with. Yeah, I'm one of those people. And it, because it takes so much to get it done, right? It, and uh, it demands so much. And so then therefore, it transforms uh, an individual who works on a film so much. And that's why the relationships, I think, in film end up becoming so intimate. Interesting. I was sort of 
Before this call, I was sort of reviewing these sort of screen recordings of my appointment setters and sort of I basically watched hours and hours of them um, reply to people on my behalf, critiquing them and sort of finding all the mistakes. And I've been doing this for the last three or four months and it's just hours and hours. I'm watching these recordings at 10 times speed. I'm like, man, this is so boring. And then I realized that as a director, you're probably having to watch your 90 minute movie again and again and again. Is that so? And like, how do you sort of make that interesting and not just get burnt out of watching the same thing over and over again? It lives inside you. Uh, when you, you know, I, as like, let's take Grace and Grit, you know, for example, the movie about Ken and Trey Wilbur adapted from his book, the same title, Grace and Grit. And um, because I adapted the screenplay, right, I had read the book a number of times and then I had, you know, broken the book down into how I was going to construct it as a story. In other words, what stays in, what stays out, what stays in, but happens in a different chronology. And so then I'm very familiar with the with the work. It's very intimate then to me. And as is with any writer adapting a book. Yeah, but prior to that, I've read almost all of Ken Wilber's books already and, you know, had profound respect and admiration and adoration for his writing and his mind and his voice. So I, I think it was important to include as a center point kind of his fingerprint of integral, yeah? So already at that point, it's pretty intimate to me. So then when we go to shoot it, yeah, I'm working with every department as a producer and as a director then after the writing component is completed. And that's very intimate, right? With Mina Suvari, with Stuart Townsend, with Mariel Hemingway, with Francis Fisher, Nick Stahl, everybody who's in the, Rebecca Graff, everybody who's in the movie. There's a very intimate relationship with these individuals who prior to them portraying those individuals are real people, Ken and Treya, Wilbur, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So then it's another level there. And then with the lighting, yeah, and with the lenses and camera, you know, and the 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 production design, where we're shooting it, how we're shooting it becomes intimate through design of costumes. Yeah. And, and then even in makeup, you know, we're talking about things that are physical and real, but you, we're also we're also describing them in a way that is about how is this going to affect the audience? You know, i.e., for example, you know, to kind of ground that, you know, Ken is wearing colors that are earthy. Yeah. Throughout the movie, it's very specific to his character. You know, he's of the earth. It's masculine. You know, Atreya, uh, portrayed by Mina Suvari, is wearing, you know, she's got purple as like her color. The flowers around her are always purple. She always has a purple scarf or dress or something in the room is always purple from the opening to the clothes. Yeah, almost always, you know, different shades of that. And the woman who portrays her mother, Frances Fisher, right, who also played the mother in Titanic, you know, she's from Texas and she's so very you know, sort of gold and 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 royal and and green and blue and like this. And so these aren't things that the audience will pick up on, but it's the things that the audience will feel, right? As an audience person, you feel then the differentials. So then, you know, then uh, the next step is, you know, when we are editing it, yeah, the that's several months. So you're watching every frame, yes, again and again and again. And then when you're scoring it after the picture is locked, then you're watching every frame again and again, and then you're color correcting it, etc. With all these different artists that I'm collaborating with, extraordinary artists in this case. So then when it comes time to show it, I already know the movie. Like I know it. Yeah, I know it so well. You know, if I've written it, produced it and directed it and collaborated with all these individuals. Yet, if you have a child, right, or a dog, you know, or a pet or a lover, you know it, and yet each time you see it, maybe you see something new and you experience something new. Now, while a sentient being is growing and changing and this movie is not growing and changing, I'm still growing and changing. 
So to answer the question, yes, every time I see it, I've already seen it. I already know what's going to happen. I can feel it. But it always strikes me differently. And perhaps that's because this film is so intimate to me. And because I feel deeply indebted yeah, to Ken Wilber just for his work in the world and his mind has is, is impacted me on such a profound level. So it's always a, um, a pleasure for me to watch it. And it strikes me differently. Some moments I laugh, other moments I don't laugh, depending on when I watch it and who I watch it with and what's it, what I'm experiencing that day. Some moments I cry, other moments I don't. But it always hits me uh, very, very, very differently. And I always think at the end, when I see the picture of the two of them in the credits, when you have the real actors next to the real people, and some of that video footage of Treya, and then audio of Ken, the, the actual individuals, uh, after the actors, I always, you know, think, you know, I really, I hope that I did these two beautiful humans service, you know, into this thing. So how do I make it... Uh, um, watchable for so many millions of times right is the question um I, I think of it as a sort of spiritual experience in service i suppose that's beautiful sebastian how do you go about staying calm when you're sort of doing everything everything from like lighting music makeup talking to the actors picking the actors costumes set design like that's a lot of responsibilities how do you like keep yourself from spiraling out I tend to have a very Zen quality uh, on set and in general. Um, and I think that Ken has that quality as well. In other words, you know, if you lived 20 years, right, or 15 years, you know, you might panic about things because you haven't had your heart broken enough or had lost enough people or things. But then if you live 100 years or 200 years or 500 years, you know, eventually the sense of humor of God or of spirit or of the cosmos starts to come through, right? You know, in other words, some jokes are short and some jokes are long. You know, some jokes are just within the same day, but other jokes are long. You know, in other words, there's a fruition and a gestation period to anything in life. Yeah, whether it's relationship or, you know, personal growth and awareness. And I think that the nature of the cosmos is to have a sense of humor. I mean, when we look inside of ourselves, it's like this crazy war. And then we look closer and it's pretty amazing, like what's being created. And the same thing we look out, the nebula. It's insane, right? The fire coming off of the sun and it's like so you know, torrential and yet it's spectacular, right? From a distance. And so I think, well, the signs out, outward, you know, and inward, right? Micro and macro, right? Are, are there. And so we are a product of that. We're an aspect of that rather. And so there's no need to panic. Yeah, it doesn't make anything better. You know, it's okay to let go, you know, in every Alan Watts-esque way comparing the cosmos or the universe to the ocean to the water we have to surrender and let go to flow if i'm directing a movie I, I tend to take that posture i tend to take that posture in relationship and everything sort of in my life i suppose i give it everything you know, all of myself it's important to be passionate and attached yes but to also surrender to it it's a fun puzzle it's very challenging Absolutely. It's, it's, the challenges on directing a movie, the, the challenges are gargantuan. <laughs> it must be. I was recently in Mongolia and a lot of the Mongolians, they believe that God comes from within. And once you tap into that or unlock it, you sort of, there's a shift. There's like an enlightenment. Now, I've been sitting on that thought and thinking about it over the last one to two months. I still don't fully understand it yet. But sort of what you talked about, how, you know, everything comes from your own perspective within how you are sort of the control of your universe that's sort of what i thought of as you were bringing that up it's a it's a, a perfect analogy yeah 
That's a beautiful analogy and metaphor. Are you are you from there? I'm Vietnamese, but I was just there traveling. Yeah, beautiful long history there in Mongolia. Yeah, and I've been also reading sort of Ken Wilber's A Theory of Everything. I've been sort of I'm halfway through the book, and definitely my like my vocabulary. I'm not there. Like it's it's a hard read. I'm struggling to understand it. I'm sort of vaguely understanding all the different colors and how humans are evolving and how sort of more sophisticated humans are like these sort of colors that are higher up and it's sort of more sort of universal. And if you go down to the lower colors, it's more sort of singular. I guess my question is, how did you go about reading Ken Wilber's stuff? And did you also struggle to understand it at first? Or did you have prior sort of philosophical sort of knowledge and, and books and readings that helped you make it easy to understand? What a great question for your audience, because, you know, there are so many authors, right, who are extraordinary, whether it's Carl Jung or Freud or, you know, contemporarily, you know, Don Miguel Ruiz wrote The Four Agreements or Marianne Williamson or Anthony Robbins or Joe Dispenza or um, James Hollis, kind of the founder of the Jung Center. Who, and the, most of these people I'm very close with, and they've been wonderful influences on my life and they have become peers. And a lot of the, the power in so many of their, in their works is that they're profound uh, in being able to point things out about life. And also the power in their works are that you can pick up like Eckhart Tolle's book or Anthony Robbins' book or Marianne Williamson's book, and you can just start reading it. Yeah, and it doesn't require a specific vernacular or a requisite. And it, it could, you know, people will say, oh, I just read, you know, The Four Agreements and it meant the world to me. And I love Dami Gallery. He's one of my dearest friends. I'm actually seeing him in a couple of days. And uh, that's the power of that is that anyone can pick it up and, and it can transform anyone. It can help someone through something. The challenge, of course, with Ken Wilber's books is there is a requisite of a hundred other books or at least a dozen other books, right? Because the vernacular is thick. And, and he, I think, you know, many authors are writing for a popular audience to make it accessible. And I think Ken writes really to kind of drive the edge of consciousness evolution. Yeah, and that's why so many people who read Ken have a story about how'd you get, how'd you figure, you know, how'd you get in, how'd you fall in love with Ken Wilber's mind, right? And then once you start reading Ken Wilber, right, once anyone says, you have to always come back because it's so right on the edge. Yeah, it's right on the cusp of consciousness evolution. In other words, what he's iterating is really pushing the limits, yeah, of what's possible with thought and perception and language. And so, yes, at first, you know, I, I, uh, came across a brief history of everything and uh, it was coming to me from all angles it was very interesting uh, there was an artist who had said that her father loved it and that she reminded me of him and and I was interesting and then then there was uh, someone else who said listen my this guy I know is very much like you and before he died this was all he read and I said oh my so that was it then I was like oh, I better get into this right the the, the world's telling me something and it was thick and it was slow at the beginning, but I literally took a month out of my life and I sat with that book and I just took it everywhere with me. And I, it, I was so impressed and in awe of it that I read it so slowly and I wanted to not just comprehend it, right, but really own it, you know? I didn't want the things to be just intellectual. I wanted to really embody the things because they were so profound. I never read anything like it, you know? And I was a voracious reader, particularly at that time. So then when I got into it and I read that book so slowly, yeah, and I and I filled it with notes, a brief history of everything. And that a brief history of everything is a great book because it's it's really the kind of a truncated, abridged version of sexicology spirituality, right? Which is like an 800 page tome, you know, kind of like Ken's Magnum opus, right? If you will. And then after that, all his work, I was so embedded in it that it became just natural 
to me and then and you know the vernacular became pedestrian and familiar to me if you will when you sort of first discovered ken what was that oneness what was that like wow like this is completely different what was that shift that you were absorbing and, and learning about i think to uh it's a great question and uh, uh to draw an analogy to make it very specific about ken wilbur you know for any of the audience who isn't hasn't read him yet if someone's interested in consciousness eventually it leads to ken wilbur right tony robbins Marianne Williamson, whatever, you know, everybody basically says like, Ken is the lighthouse, you know, Alex Gray, you know, etc. All the most brilliant people in the world are reading Ken Wilber. That's where it's at. I think that, you know, when I first started reading him, I wasn't aware of that. I got into it. And the analogy is Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, describes from the Big Bang up until today, the entire physical universe and how it's evolved, right? And it's a great book. And he's got a great sense of humor right? It's one of the most bought and unread books, like after the Bible, I think. Hawking's A a, a Brief History of of Time. So Ken's book, A Brief History of Everything, is comparable, but it's not just the physical universe, right? It's also how does emotion evolve? How does consciousness particularly evolve? How do societies and religions and thought and love and, you know, in other words, these things, how do we evolve out of these things and through these things? And and I, I just never read something so poetically powerful and intellectually astute. And the references were so extraordinary, you know? I mean, I it was actually Ken, you know, who who got me into William Joseph von Schelling, yeah, and Hegel and and he because he was just referring to to so many of the books that he'd read that had impacted him. Ramana Maharshi as well, uh, Adida as well, you know, and, and his mastery of being able to take all of that material and synthesize it into something with this poetic force, yeah, that's both tender with this feminine quality and encompassing and inviting, but masculine and strong with such incredible direction. And I think he's got this unbelievable sense of humor, yeah. I mean, I, I whenever I read his stuff, I always laugh out loud because I'm in awe and and for one, and then he's always doing something really interesting and funny, paradoxical. When people say getting into and learning about consciousness, what does that mean? So the things that come into my mind, I think of qualia, I think of simulation theory, I think of like, is my experience the same as you? I think of like, what is outside of the Big Bang? Like where the big, that's all the things I think of. Is that a part of consciousness or is that, is the, or is consciousness completely different? Yeah, what a great question. Uh, yeah, the, those things are all aspects of it. I mean, consciousness precedes reality right out of something comes out of nothing right not the other way around right like people come out of people i mean you think about that just to begin with it's pretty outrageous you know like people come out of people right it's you know and i think that and you know the universe the cosmos god spirit whatever has a great sense of humor in that way that in other words like even if we look at like scientifically let's say the big bang you know and there's this potent energy source and then out of that come you know protons neutrons electrons and then molecules and then you know life you know sentient life etc and it, it evolves from that and so it seems like consciousness evolves on the edge of that and consciousness is always evolving and changing right like it, it's this dynamic holographic extrapolation of what you know of just consciousness itself right it's just a play yeah being extrapolated of which we are an aspect so we're driving it we're also an aspect 
of it. And if you think, you know, even the map that we're, you know, that we're using to, to, to articulate this is a product of it, an aspect of it, right? So words can only go so far. And I think that's, you know, in other words, how can you draw something with an aspect of the entity or poetry or light or that is, you know, being, being extrapolated, right? In other words, it's ineffable. And I think that, you know, brings us to a wonderful sort of point about Zen, yeah? You know, that there is something that we immediately know about love and about life and about being that can't be said with words, yeah? And so that's why as humans, we use art and architecture and language and music and movies to try to say things that we know somewhere inside, but we can say them infinite number of times. Uh, like how many love stories are there? And we're not even, we're just getting started. How many love songs are there, right? How many brilliant, you know, buildings or statues, you know, or paintings, yeah, or poems? Because as we change, the poetry changes, right? As we change individually and collectively, the myth changes, yeah? In the very Joseph Campbell-esque way, it's a new myth, you know, that, that, that we need to define our new being. You know, we've grown, we're larger, right? as a collective and so therefore the myth is deepening right and so i think that the all those elements that you describe right you know the the, the big bang and you know the stars and the, the sun and our human bodies yes are manifestations of consciousness artifacts of consciousness when you talked about this growth, this building, this sort of, as an individual, we're sort of building this beautiful story of our life and it's ever changing, ever evolving, it's, it keeps stacking and you learn new skills, you go through different experiences, you go through ups and downs, and then it sort of accumulates and then you just die. <laughs> I, I guess as I was saying I was like okay I guess, I guess the lesson is like enjoy and, and really enjoy that journey up there because it's eventually gonna disappear it does feel a bit sad that it sort of drops off and it's like oh wow okay I guess that's the end of the story I, I really appreciate that you brought this up in one way yes but in another way not at all and the differential between those is who's the I and what's the dropping off right and like so i.e you have this gross body and this sense of self, right? Andy, you know, I feel like this person doing this in this world, right? And I care for these things and these people and these, you know, I, Sebastian, same, right? And so that experience is relatable. And, uh, you know, the ego, which doesn't actually exist, but it's a word that we use to describe something, which is essentially the sense of self right? A sense of, you know, who we are in the world and how we, by how we operate, right? That needs for the perpetuation, right, of existence to hold on and to be passionate and to want to live, right? And yes, that dies, right? At the end of X number of years or time or whatever, that dies and it falls off. And that's the sadness, right, that you talk about. And that should be that way. Yeah, the end of a kiss, a kiss is beautiful, but the end of a kiss it kind of leaves you wanting more, right? In some way, it's satisfying, it's enough, but then you still want another, right? At some juncture. Now, the what Ramana Maharshi calls the I-I, the I behind the I, it doesn't drop off. It actually goes on. And the embodiment of that, of, in other words, from the perspective of spirit, this is really 
fun. I mean, this is really a good time from the protectors of spirit. It doesn't matter if you live or die, right? There's something beyond. Yeah, and I think that intrinsically we as individuals know that. And that's why we have religion. And that's why we do rituals, you know, to celebrate rites of passage, whether it's birth, puberty, or death, marriage, etc. Because we intrinsically know that. And even someone who says, look, I don't, not religious, I'm not spiritual. You ask them, well, okay, your lover dies. What do you do? You just put him in the garbage chute and go on with your day, you know? No, probably you bury him or, or you know, burn them or have some sort of something. But why? If you really don't believe why? Because all on a fundamental level, intrinsically, we all know that it goes on forever. Even animals, you know, they look and they smell and they can see the other animals dead it's not there anymore but there's something there still right something perpetuates on you know something you know the, the the something percolates yeah outward and i think that intrinsically we all know that yeah that it, that it's given so in the terms of you know to, to bring that back like to grace and grip it's really a story about love beyond life and you know in that film as articulated in the book these two individuals meet each other in this brief life and they feel like they've always been looking for each other and they're looking for each other in their dreams in the movie which is how i draw the subtle world and just at the moment they find each other right and they're like oh my god we found each other can you believe this nothing like this has ever happened to me like this is so bizarre and they're both in awe they can't even express it you know and just at that moment then they're torn apart right that she dies and it seems tragic and it is heart-wrenching but it's beautiful because when she passes it's like they've had this awareness that even though they're ripped apart from this life, they found each other just at the right moment to be able to see each other, that they know they've been dancing outside of the stream of time and for millions of years inside of the stream of time. And I think that's the story that I was really trying to tell in that movie, right? Which is why it's, for some people, it's hard, it's intense to watch, you know, on a more accessible level, if you think about the movie Titanic, right? Everybody knows it's about a ship that sinks and you know, he dies at the end. But everybody loves that movie. It's so romantic. Why? Right? It's like the end of the movie, you know, never let go, Jack, never let go. You know, it's so beautiful. I love that film. It's a really, the movie is not about the sinking of a ship, just like Grace and Grit is not really about cancer. You know, it's not really about an illness. On one level, it is, you know, on one level, Titanic is about the sinking of a ship. The ship is sinking the whole movie, just like in Grace and Grit. They're being daunted with this thing the whole, the whole time. But it's really about two individuals on a boat on the Titanic, and their life doesn't work outside of that boat because the boat is sinking they're confronted with their mortality and so they say you know what i don't care about the rules of society and the paradigms we're gonna love each other and we're gonna we might be ripped apart at any moment from this world but we're gonna dance beyond this lifetime yeah, and that's what's so romantic about the end of that film you know it's like never let go jack never let go like she knows he's dying he, like it's zit right but never let go outside of this and that's you know what i use in grace and grit is i'll find you you know, I'll find you. I found you before and I'll find you again. You know, that this is heart-wrenching in this moment to be ripped away from you. But, you know, I'm going to see you again. I'm going to find you through different eyes in a different awareness, through a different experience. But I'm going to find you. You know, when we were in edit on my movie, On Grace and Grip, the, uh, and when I was in color, the, uh, and uh, people have talked about Terrence Malick a little bit around this film and particularly in Tree of Life. There's this, did you see Tree of Life? Okay, it's a Terrence Malick made the movie. It's with um, George Clooney and Sean Penn and, um, and Brad Pitt. And I mean, it's, it's extraordinary, right? It, it, but it's a really um, esoteric film. Yeah. But I bring it up because 
there were some references. Alex Gray had referred to it when he wrote the review about Grace and Grit. He, you know, he wrote about Tree of Life and about the fountain also. And there's a scene in, in Tree of Life that kind of people who are cinephiles talk about where there's a dinosaur and it comes across another dinosaur, a smaller dinosaur, and it puts its right hoof, paw, hand, foot, whatever, on top of the other dinosaur's head. Like it could just crush it. You know, it's very dominant but it doesn't. And then it goes off. But it seems like a non sequitur to a lot of film critics or cinephiles, like why all of a sudden in the middle of this movie with all these people, because there's this dinosaur scene. For me, I cried in that moment. And it was the only moment that was emotional, super emotional for me. And for me, the whole movie's right there. And there's this kind of online debate about is the movie better with it or without it, right? And for me, that is the whole movie. Why? And it's because exactly what you brought up, right? That it's painful to die it's painful to let go it's painful to lose each other you know like you said like what's the what's the solace we just live and then we just drop off right like you know what's the point right these two dinosaurs they know each other from another existence right and they can smell it yeah and they're like wait a second wait a second wait a second i know you and then they go on and that's it just that moment but that moment exists outside of the stream of time right that moment is transcendent that moment is eternal and that's the picture that I try to draw with grace and grit. And so I think that your instinct and your intuition, right, in bringing that up, I really appreciate it. That is at the crux of all of my work, whether it's in storytelling and psychology or movies or meditation or even in health, you know, and fitness. It's really about pushing the levels, pushing towards death, not with the intent to die, pushing towards death with the intent to live forever. And when I say forever, I mean transcendently beyond the stream of time, not like more years as you're saying all that i was having like flashbacks to like moments where you know there'll be a spider on the wall i'm going up to like spray it or kill it and then something just tells me to just leave it and i just leave it and i go on about my day and it's this weird it's, it's like something just strikes me and i'm like let's just leave it and i just go on and i i, I don't even and, and i forget that moment was even in a moment what a great instinct yeah and that's i think that uh, that's right on the that's right on the nose something is communicating with us through us all the time right and and we can't try to hear it right we just have to hear it sometimes we hear it more than others you think about what makes a life you know how do we how do we decide what to eat or who to kiss or what to be upset by or what to be excited by you know how do we decide what to write or read or express or it's happening through us yeah so in the same way like dovetailing back into the you know our, our stream of thought about the extrapolation of consciousness and the big bang and these physical bodies it's always happening through us like and i think that the way you know the, the best analogy for that is like you think about swallowing right i swallow and it's both voluntary and involuntary or signing 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 your name is a great one you know you sign it and you kind of have an intent but it's effortless and then it's beautiful your signature but if you try too hard the signature sucks right it's like dancing it's like orgasm it's like digestion, you know, it's like all these things that are so fundamental to us. If we try too hard to breathe, you know, it's, you know, but if we just, and we know not to force it, you know, but to have an intent, you know, it's, it's let go to hold on is what I call it. And I wrote that into Grace and Grit um, a couple times. There's a scene where they split up and she's in the shower alone with her head shaved and she's thinking back about how they were madly in love what seems like a you know a million years ago and they're sitting in the same shower laughing and in love you know 
and she's crying and she's like, you know, she says, let go to hold Mina Suvari, you know, who's playing trash. She says, let go to hold on, let go to hold on. Meaning we have to surrender, right? We have to give ourselves to the ocean to know how to swim. Yeah. I love sort of conversations like this. It taps me into this whole sort of different world where I can really feel that how great and beautiful the world we are in and how infinite it is but then yet you know two three hours from now i can be just sucked onto my phone and chasing dopamine and scrolling through tiktok and snacking and eating and going back to working to earn money to keep myself alive and it feels like these two complete opposite things do you try to get to a place where you can be zen throughout it all and and sort of with practice that becomes more and more of your life and you go through work you go through eating with a sort of zen sort of perspective or it is a back and forth yeah it is a back and forth yeah that's what a what a confident and graceful you know the way you express that because the situation of being human is your messy business uh, it's tough, you know, and I think that in the same way, you look at a rainbow, right? It's so beautiful and you stare at it and it's just like, you can't get enough. And then the best way to, to, to really see it is to look away and then to look back, you know, even if like you're looking at the gradation of light in the sky early in the morning before the sunrise or, or at sunset, look from orange and then purple and then dark, you know, and the blues in between the pinks in between, it's almost like you have to look away to look back. Same thing like with the moon's been full, right? Last couple of nights. You look at the moon, it's so, it's extraordinary, outrageous. You know, we've been looking at this thing since before we had eyes, if you will, you know, since we were like molecules in the ocean. It's so powerful and you have to look away to look back. So I think that in some ways, you know, that like what you're saying is, yeah, the bounce at some point you're in it and then you have to go back because it is let go to hold on, right? Like, you know, there's this famous, you know, discussion, right? Like between Alan Watts and Aldous Huxley. And it's like, hey, listen, I, I I just want you to know that I've given this whole thing about Zen up. I'm going to get as deeply attached as I can and passionate about absolutely everything, you know? And that is the game, right? It's like, you know, f- for example, if, if, if we play Monopoly, if you don't care at all, then you don't get disappointed at all. But then you don't have any fun. You have to care enough to get in it, into the rules, you know, and really into the thing. But if you care too much, right, and you, you that it becomes a fight and a struggle, then that's too much, right? And so there is this sweet spot between, you know, between everything. And I think that we know, you know, we know. And the, the cool thing is there's no map for it. You know, we have to just trust and know. And I think that that thing, that intuition, that omega point pull to evolve becomes more and more important instinctually and intuitively. Now, particularly with the emergence, you have AI you know, and, and automation, you know, that in other words, you know, we, we, it's like, you know, we've got to, uh, this life, it's so brief, right. And, you know, to be passionate, you know, and to be heartbroken and to be excited, you know, and to be enraged and enraptured, it's the greatest thing. And, and it, it wants to come through us and, and we ought to let that come through us. I mean, that, if for no other reason is what drives the perpetuation of the species, you know, and it's brutal and it's hard and it hurts, but it's glorious and it's gorgeous. That monopoly metaphor was like, I just, it was a major light bulb moment. It was like, wow, that's a metaphor for life. Like if you go at life with not a care at all, then it's sort of not that fun. And if you put in too much care into life, buy every single piece of property you come by 
and trying way too hard and you're losing money and you lose the game now you sort of let down because you set that expectation but if you go through life with that that balance as you're mentioning monopoly becomes fun and life becomes fun so much so thank you and and also the relationship with the others at the table that when there's this freedom and there's fun people want you to win and you want others to win mm. right because it's so loose but if it tries too hard to win, then it becomes all of a sudden it, it, it sows a sourness in the relationships. You know, when if someone wants to win so much, you know, it's like, you know, no one likes it. You know, it's too oppressive. right? <laughs> That's so true. When you brought up AI, I heard this person saying eventually there's going to be an AI where you feed it the Bible, the Quran, philosophers, Aristotle, and it's people are going to be praying to this new God. Like what happens when you sort of take an integral approach and just give it every single pieces of data can it surpass some human that manually sift through all these vast sort of info on some level yes but on another level no and i think that the and it's, it's such an important question that we always should keep asking ourselves the question you just asked there right because yeah the age of data collection is already over right i mean whether it's the iWatch or the phone or the computer or the glasses or whatever the thing i mean essentially it's really coming to the point right where we don't need to memorize anything that it's accessible to us right but the memorizing of stuff and the reading of stuff obviously it drives neurological connections and the emergence of new neurological connections and so then there that then therefore that is the extrapolation of consciousness right on a physical level right that's the physical correlate right with the expansion with the of the extrapolation of consciousness like new neurological connections new romantic connections or love connections or friendship connections or compassionate or tender connections with a animal or a person or the world or nature whatever the thing is and so yes pretty soon very soon yeah i mean the synthesis of all knowledge it's there right and so you know like like in what was that movie the deep blue right where the uh Gary Kasparov plays the IBM computer, you know, like, yeah, sure, right? Anything can be quantified and the, the computer will be better, no question about it. And so then there's some derivative integration of how our technology then drives human life forward into, into some sort of more, you know, if we construct it correctly, you know, some sort of healthier dynamic evolutionary version of us yeah now so in one way yeah right we, we we can't compete with that we can't keep up however on the other side of that the evolution of consciousness itself the omega point pull to evolve isn't about progress or an end product right it's only a play and you know what i was saying there about you know the age of data collection like if everybody uses chat GPT, well, why read anything? Why write anything? You know, I mean, it scares me that one, you know, and when I say scares me, meaning I'm not daunted by the future of it. I think it's a great product. Fine. I don't particularly use it because if I start to depend on that, how am I going to forge my own ideas? Like this conversation that you and I are having right now, right? I'm only alive and you're only alive and expressive and articulate in so much as you've taken the time to read the books and write the content and develop it and cultivate it, right? And I think that becoming, you know, speaking interpersonally becomes more and more valuable and important going forward with the automation of things. I mean, Waze or you know, Google Maps, etc. I think indicate that you can move to a city and drive around and have no idea where you're going because you use Waze all the time, right? There's nothing wrong with that, right? Maybe it's not necessary. But there is something about 
you know, and it's like same thing like with the calculator, right? Like the calculator is great, you know, no need to really learn math, but it's not the product that's important. You know, in other words, it's not the quotient or the end result of being able to figure out the mathematical thing. The process of doing it drives neuro, new neurological connections and therefore excitement, anticipation. Yeah, and that is life itself. You know, the, the purpose and the meaning of life is not progress. That's an aspect of it, you know, and, 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 but it's not the purpose. And I think that's the, the part where people fall off thinking, ah, the purpose of life is total achievement and progress. And that's, that's not, yeah. You know, to be process oriented towards something, like to have a goal and going somewhere, yeah, is great because then all our cells align with that. You know, our telos goes there, yeah. But same thing, like in the Monopoly set, it can't be like my mission here isn't really to win here. It's really to have fun. But I want to focus on winning the game because that makes it more fun, right? It's like, why do men or why do people go fishing, right? Is it to catch fish? Well, if you're hungry and you need to catch fish, yeah, it's to catch fish. But it's not really why people buy a boat and get a bunch of fishing rods. It's not really why, you know? You're not fishing to catch fish, you know? You're, you're catching relationship. You're catching God. You know, you're catching nature, right? We're catching each other and maybe we share things that we wouldn't otherwise share. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's really at the crux. That's at the crux of it, yeah? You know, I, I think to kind of um, borrow something really from Alan Watts in the same way that I, you know, to use another analogy in terms of where's AI going and, you know, is progress, everything. If two people are on a dance floor, right? Or one person and you're dancing, like what's the objective? Like if AI can already tell you where you're going to end up on the dance floor, is that, is that, okay, I'm going to end up seven feet from here. And during the whole dance, I'm going to dance 20 feet that way, 50 feet that way, three feet this way. I'm going to be up, down, and that's where I'm going to, so, okay, so what? So AI's figured it out. That's where I'm going to end up. But that's not the point of the dance, right? It is to express and to let go and to be so present and alive, or at least find moments where we can be present and alive and free. That's the point of the dance. It doesn't matter where we end up on the floor. Yeah. And so then, therefore, the music also right? It doesn't end with dun, 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 right? It's the whole juxtaposition between dun, 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 and we anticipate something coming and the excitement and breath in that. So I appreciate you brought it up because I think it's something that's very important right now. And it's an important question to keep asking, you know, because the only way we can come to that answer of being process oriented, like everybody knows, you know, like the Eckhart Tolle book, you know, be here now, Ram Das, be here now. Like everybody knows, right? Just be here now, just be present, right? But it's an exercise. And that exercise is only realized like in the way that you describe this bug in your house and you go over to the bug and something tells you, let it go. They're not wrong, right? But something, and it's you following the instinct, not overthinking it, but trusting it, feeling it to, to know. And then that's, then you're, that carries over then to your instincts with everything else. Yeah. And I think that people are having a particularly tough time in a lot of ways socializing now because there's been so much automation of interpersonal communication through digitization on social media, Instagram, Facebook, what have you, that people don't know how to show up and read small cues and pick up subtle cues, you know, between eyes dilating and skin blushing or somebody moving their fingers, things that we don't think about. We don't, we can't, we're not interpreting them, but we're subconsciously interpreting them. Yeah. And I think that those things become more and more important because they hone our instincts. And why is that important? 
because that is life itself, right? That is the extrapolation of consciousness. Yeah, being able to subtly think, do those things. So AI doesn't do that. In other words, it can do it, it can simulate it, and it's gonna be simulating that very, very soon from now. But the objective isn't the end result, right? When you mention sort of having, you know, a focus, having a goal, sort of something to just point you in a certain direction, how do you go about that? Like, for example, I know, you know, I guess I wanna make money, I wanna be able to travel, I want to meet beautiful people. I want to have amazing conversations. And I guess in general, I just want to have fun. But these are so many different things. Do I just go ahead and just point towards having fun, figuring out all these different things? I love that question. You know, I, I have an office in Venice, California, and, you know, for therapy, for couples therapy, you know, as therapist, and I, I, and I bring it up, obviously, in the workshops that I do and the you know, meditative practices and, and kind of lucid dreaming things. And the world is very generous to individuals with a focus. And the focus can always change. And I, and I love that question because that's one that has to be asked yeah, every day, I think, also kind of to set the day, you know, or the night before. That if we're focusing on something, let's say we're on a boat and we're going towards an island, you know, we're going there and the, the, the movement of our intent and our emotions and our cells and, and the boat itself. And we're going towards there. Yeah. And then something else happens, you know, a whale or a storm and it carries us elsewhere. And that's perfectly OK. Mm, what an adventure. Yeah. But if we just like aren't going anywhere, the boat doesn't do very well. A wave comes and the boat's over, you know, it, it drifts out and it, it, you know, in other words, there's a there's a, an intrinsic you know, drive towards um, entropy, yeah, that, that if we don't take care of ourselves, you know, we, we, we decompose, you know, life itself decomposes. And so I think having a goal is so important. And living in a place like California, many people come without goal, uh, the, a dream or something, but without a goal. And it's very, it's this cities now, I mean, so many cities are metropolitan, you know, throughout the world, but to not have a goal is it hurts yeah, on the inside, you know, and it doesn't matter what the goal is. You know, it doesn't really matter. You know, we go after it and then anything can happen. Yeah. In other words, in that very like um, sort of providence, you know, occurs that God, the universe forces come to lift us up. Right. Seemingly. That's the nature of the very fabric of existence to tie it back to the boat. You've got the sail up and you go and then the wind comes at just the right moment and it takes you in the boat and you go and you, you know, and, and who knows, right? And you're going to go climb a mountain. You know, there's this movie uh, out, you know, uh, last year, 14 Peaks, you know, but this incredible climber right? and he, he climbs like the highest 14 peaks and like, it's just insane, you know, and he shows up at camp one day at um, K2, right? One of the most, uh, one of the highest mortality rate uh, climbs in the world right? More than Everest, not as tall, but much harder, you know, and he, you know, one of the reasons why is because there's this overhang of ice and, you know, you climb up and then you have to, at some point, right, to summit, you have to go underneath this giant, you know, chunk of ice, right? It's like, you know, humongous. And the, the chances of that, if that falls, like everyone's dead, like immediately right so he gets there and everyone's like freaked out and they don't know what to do and it's like the temperature and it's that thing he says well okay we're gonna go we're gonna go right now you know we're gonna go at night and they're like no it's too freezing you know but it's perfect because it's so cold that that thing definitely won't fall right and it opens everyone's minds and they're like and he's so confident that they just go with him and all these people summit right and i think that that you know that's also the nature of life you know you take a stab at it you know and i think that that's demonstrated 
on the most fundamental levels throughout the fabric of life. You know, even like with the sperm and the fallopian tube going to the egg, it's like, it's going somewhere, you know, <laughs> it's going somewhere, you know, and it, and it gets there. And then what, what happens, right? It's embraced, you know, and then here comes a person, you know, here comes this whole new universe, right? Out of this connection, right? But it all originates with a direction. And so I think, you know, in short, the direction doesn't matter, but yeah, to have one is important. The thing that I sort of started thinking about as you were sort of sharing that was, you know, it's crazy. Like I'm, I'm scared of death. I'm scared of going broke. Yet every time I've gone close to it, the fabric of the universe has lifted me up, put a stranger into my life that guided me out of this forest. Or for some reason, I just got accepted for this grant. And all of a sudden that's now funding my business. And usually the most epic stories and growth comes from these near death, near sort of broke situations. Yet we've been sort of raised in a way where we are constantly saving, constantly stacking. And we're scared to ever go back to nothing or, or go to sort of near death sort of experiences. Obviously, I'm not recommending people to sort of look and, and try to die. Um, but like, I've never died before. I've never gone broke before yet I'm scared of it. And yet every time I have, the universe has come to save me. So what if I break this thought and, and trust the universe and, and keep sort of trying to create these beautiful stories and growth experiences? You know, this paradox, right, between wanting to hold on to life, you know, and like, to not be afraid. And that's the same thing, right? When we're talking about the, you know, well, like you die and like, what's the point? You know, you just, you live X number of years and you die and you fall off, right? And it's the same thing, right? It's the I and the I and the Ramana Maharshi, the I, I, the little I, the me here now that identifies as Andy or Sebastian or what have you, right? And then there's this greater I that's transcendent I that is well aware that everything goes on. Yeah. And we're supposed to identify with the I here now because that's the way we stay here now and we can live on at least for another day, right? Yet there's something that, you know, we have this will to kind of like have children or, you know, cultivate things beyond ourselves, right? there's this deep intrinsic awareness that it goes on forever right because it's we're a product of that you know we're a product of that on on, on on but you know the very fabric on a molecular level right we're a product of that and the first probably viral image if you will right is Thich Nhat Duke right who lit himself on fire right when they you know that famous image of the Buddhist yeah, and he's he's lit himself on fire to protest not being able to celebrate the Buddha's birthday, right? You know, you look at that photo and he is there and he's burning alive. I think about him <laughs> when I get in the ice bath sometimes. I keep my ice bath very cold, right at zero and full of ice. You know, I think about him because it's so powerful because he's he's not it's not that he's courageous. It's not that he's disciplined because that can't let an individual do that right? Courage and discipline are things that expand the sense of identity and self here and now. He's done the opposite. He surrendered sense of small self and ego and identity to the big self, spirit, and the I behind the I and the beyond. And so when he sits down to light himself on fire, that's really what he's saying. He's saying this is so much bigger than what it is to be human. This is so big. And if we're going to celebrate the Buddha's birthday, we're going to do it, you know, and I'm not in this existence without that ability to do that. And I'm going to show you right now, because I'm going to exit this existence. I mean, that is really, I love that photo. It's very interesting, because I put that photo on my social media, and it's blacked out, like you have to click on it to see it, right? And I thought, ooh, 
that's uh, interesting you know like that concept uh is intimidating to people you know it scares people who want to hold on to life too much and i even heard it for a moment there when you said it like i'm not purporting or suggesting or hoping people push towards death right it was your instinct to say i need to be gentle because people feel we feel suicidal we feel like we want it to end and i i tend to take a pretty assertive place on that too like i it's good to have death right there on the other side of the pillow it's important it's important for a sense of humor it's important for progress because then it helps us like not care so much it's like well all right i i'm gonna die you know like it's okay, you know, like, it's not the worst thing that can happen, right? <laughs> you know, and I think about that, like, even though Tutankhamun, and I also think about like, like, with Martin Luther King, you know, when he was assassinated, like, he gave that speech, you know, shortly before about climbing to the promised land, and saying intuitively, I may not make it there with you, you know, but I'm gonna climb up the mountain, you know, and I'm, I, I can see it, and I can feel it, I can intuit it in the future. And it was very interesting, because he was fighting, you know, at a time, and he was protesting for the sanitary workers to get a raise, you know, and right after he was assassinated, they got the raise, you know, he was, in other words, he achieved in death, something that he couldn't achieve, you know, even in life, you know, and I, and I, so I think about that's, wow. And that's, I think, what we celebrate, right, when one of the things we celebrate, when we think about Duke, or we think about Martin Luther King, you know, wow, the ability, in other words, to embody the eye behind the eye. I, I like to take that stance when I work out, when I exercise, when I read, when I read Ken Wilber, it's like the most challenging work, uh, you know, when I first discovered it. And I thought, wow, this is really touching the edge. I got to do that. I mean, that's as good as it gets, right? And so I get into that. And when I make a movie, I try to go about it in that way too, right? Like making Grace and Grit is a tough one. Like nobody wants to make that film. You know, many people came before me to try to make that film and couldn't get it done because it's a hard one, you know, because it's really a story about transcendence. And I think that for me personally, if I'm doing lucid dreaming or if I'm storytelling, whether it's in psychology or, or, or lucidity or film, or in, for me personally, the practice of exercise, I'm trying to go beyond knowing that I can't go beyond totally. I can, right, die and go beyond, but I want to taste it at least a little bit. That's always what I'm after, tasting that a little bit, you know, and in relationship too, you know, tasting that beyond just a little bit. Yeah. Makes the price of the candle and it's worth the price of the candle. When it comes to relationships, is it possible to meet that next person that pushes the circle and is like, wow, I did not know this person existed. I did not know this, this type of relationship is there out there for me and then that then something outdoes that and just keeps outdoing itself and is it healthy to keep wanting that next thing versus settling with what you finally sort of came across settling is a tough word right um you know and i and i think that's a challenge like i don't think it's good to to i think you know settle right and it's you know it's you know any here nor there but how does the bee know which flower to pollinate, right? Like from a distance, all the flowers look the same. Right? How does how does the flower know which bee to invite? You know, from a distance, all the bees look the same. And so it's like that with people. Like pretty much from a distance, we all look the same, basically. Like, you know, from far enough away, it's like we're basically the same animal, you know. But when we get inside, you know, the, the majesty of the world, you know, of how somebody cries and laughs and what they share and how they feel, how an individual feels is pretty epic. And pretty majestic yeah so it's some juncture two-pronged one is saying all right in short you know start with the answer and then i'll go backwards into the explanation 
yeah, it's important to choose someone who has a great capacity for growth. That's the most important thing, right? One of the most important things in relationship, right? Whether it's lover or friend or colleague, the capacity for growth indicates that this story is going to keep unfolding in dynamic ways. And if we think about relationship, like the purpose in relationship, right, is not to have fun, right? We want as much fun and joy as we can, right, for sure. And that's our job. That's our duty to cultivate that, right? But it's to become. It's something far greater than fun. It's becoming, yeah, that I get to know myself through you. You get to know yourself through me. We get to know ourselves through each other. And if someone else has signed up for that, oh, it's going to be scary. It's going to be daunting. It's going to be timid. It's going to be exciting. Then that implies that can go on 100 years. Like, you know, <laughs> like for a, with a lover or a friend, you know, like we're going to have forgiveness for sure. Right. We're going to go. We're going to we're going to grow in radical ways. You know, that, that 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 can that can go a long time. You know, the highs at some level. Yes. And I think that the danger about what you brought up about, again, another relationship, another relationship, another relationship, like implying, I think, romantically. Right. That it's dangerous online. And you look at, you know, people dating online, let's say, for instance, and this comes up a lot right in my practice or in my in my workshops. You know, there's an unlimited, there's 8 billion people, right? Like, how many people can we possibly meet, right? And so there's this idea that there's some person out there that's going to like fit perfectly, you know, this is a real dangerous situation, right? Because the similarities are the touch points that keep us together, like we share the same language, we have these basic interests, etc. But the differences is where the magic is, the differences is where we both grow, right? The differences between two individuals is where the action is, you know, then we shape a little bit. You know, we, we start to shape a little differently. And if we continue to grow, we're going to continue to shape. Yeah. People are really, you know, the rate of depression is very high right now and profound, too. And loneliness, I think, because so many people are dating online. There are great stories where two people meet one another, you know, and it works, and it works out. But for the most part, there are people, it builds in a sense of expendability, right? That somebody looks at someone, imagine if you're like, you know, dating, and you only have a choice between like, you know, you're only going to get a few, right? You're going to really look at like, want to really look at it and feel it. But people do it long enough. They're just like, I oh, know, I don't like this. I don't like that. They're looking for what they don't like versus what they do like, right? It's just in other words, there's always the, 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 the bigger, better deal. You know, it's not enough wealth. It's not enough height. It's not enough, whatever the thing is, whatever the thing is, right? We can, we're, you know, constantly the hungry ghost, you know, it's never enough. And so I think, yes, at some juncture, it's very important to say, you know, to, to pick up on in our personal practice. And like, for me, my own personal practice is feeling the subtleties in the world, you know, and I, and we practice that daily, like in the same way you, you had that experience with the bug in your house, right? Really? Like you go to the, you go to the coffee shop or you go to the restaurant or you go somewhere, you pass them on the street and you, you get eye contact and you're just like, that's cool, man. It doesn't have to be a big thing, but it's cool, you know? And then that carries over into personal relationship where you're like, you get eye contact and you're like, fuck, this is cool. Like, this is amazing. You know, this is amazing. You know, I, I had this experience with Ken when he and I first met and I, I flew to go see him but long before I knew I was going to be part of Grace and Grit. And we were sitting there for several hours, eye to eye. And there's a bunch of people who sit in the room and just listen to the conversation and take notes. That's what it's like talking to Ken Wilber, right? It's like, the, it's got this red couch and it's famous. You know, you can look up, like you look at Tony Robbins and Ken Wilber images and you'll see Ken, Tony and his wife, Sage, they're so beautiful and sitting and talking to Ken, you know? And so I sat on that red couch, right? Right. A lot. And, you know, we were sitting there one time, and there was this long, 
speak, you know, long period of silence. We were just looking at each other. And we were just like looking at each other, his brown eyes. And I'm looking at him and he's looking at me and we're just there. And I just, I can't, I can't look away. We're just looking and he says, it's a miracle, miracle. You know, and it really struck me in a way, boom, like this light bulb, you know, like everything he's written, it's right there. This is it. It's so simple. It's so fundamental. Like that's the big bang already. There's no point, no need to go anywhere, but we can. So let's do it. Let's make art and cities and planets and ships and poetry and love and all those things. Let's go somewhere with it, right? But ultimately, that's all that's really going on. Intimacy, awareness, you know? Uh. <laughs> that was such a beautiful story. I, I sort of like, like, I was just visualizing you telling that and, and the eye contact and, and the silence and him just saying that and, and big bang, like, like, wow, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sebastian, are you similar to Ken where you guys both don't have children? And what's your perspective and POV on children? Yeah, you know, my brother just uh, just just had a kid, the most beautiful, most beautiful girl and his wife. They're so beautiful together, the three of them. You know, there are different ways, right, to um, bring life into the world. And I Ken is described like a human is really a pattern of intelligence, if you will. Not just brain intelligence, but intelligence on a lot of levels, right? poetically, emotionally, etc. Um, sentience, life force. And so there's also like in a very Jungian way, what is the world asking of me? What is what is the cosmos asking? What's God asking to come through me? And I've got to be loyal to that thing. And it takes on a number of different possible adventurous roads, right? And we only know what ocean to swim or what bridge to cross when we arrive. Like it's so important going in to have a plan but then once we get in like we don't really know like we don't know and we only know when we're when we're at that space you know you know when moses split the red sea right it's like they're going down and like they're like it's not looking so good but they go anyways and the sea splits right i like to you know that that and that's and there's a lot to be told that's a that's an, a show in and of itself that we can that we can get into but i think that Ken, for instance you know he's arguably the most brilliant human ever you know, I mean, Plato, Aristotle, right? Socrates, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Tynus, you know, whatever, who contemporarily Einstein, you know, blah, 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 blah. I mean, Ken's, Ken's that mind, you know? And um, so his writing, you know, is giving birth to so much on such a broad level, both depth and span, that it's, in some way, he's fathering so many children through that. So, uh, you know, on the and you look at people who are sometimes really prolific, and sometimes the challenges they have with their kids is like not so great. You know, a lot of times families didn't turn out so well. You know, a lot of times, you know, and sometimes it does. You know, I'm not I'm not saying that there's loyalty to one or another. You know, it's not this is not a, a situation of mutual exclusivity. But I think that anything can be our greatest teacher, right? And it, that can be writing, that can be illness, that can be romance, that can be love, and that can absolutely be children. And I see it right with my brother. And it's something that I don't have kids that I would like it. Yeah, sure. But it's got to be with the right girl at the right moment. You know, it's got to be with the right person, the right man, the right, you know, whatever the couple is. In other words, I think the most important, the duty is to is to say, you know, and to have a posture to say, hey, we're, we're bringing something into the world here, whether even if it's adopting or whatever the thing is that we're going to learn from, right? But we're stewards to the world in this way. We're going to bring 
this life force into the world or cultivate and raise this life force to make the world more beautiful, to help support the world and being more graceful, to cultivate depth and, and connection in the world. Yeah, then that's a great thing, you know? It's a great thing, it can be. When you brought up lucid dreaming, recently I've been sort of waking up, writing down my dreams. And the main catalyst was I used to have cold sweats and then I heard from somewhere that another person was getting cold sweats and it sort of rooted his childhood trauma. So I was like, all right, let's start writing down my dreams. Like, what am I dreaming about? And then I find myself consistently dreaming about high school experiences. So I'm writing them down like, okay, how did I feel in this dream? Okay, and then I'm accepting my high school experience. I'm accepting sort of what happened. And over time, the cold sweats started going away. The high school dreams started going away. And now I'm getting different types of dreams. And these dreams, they feel so real. I'm definitely not lucid. I'm definitely not aware I'm in it. It feels like I jump into this parallel universe of a different version of me in this sort of apocalyptic world and I'm, I'm thrown in this situation and I'm writing it the next morning, I'm seeing how I feel about that, I'm learning from these different versions of Andy and it feels like the dreams, like all the different versions of Andy are growing in parallel, like the fact that I'm no longer getting those high school dreams means I've closed that chapter and, and all the versions of Andy's and now sort of onto that next chapter. And yeah, I just brought this up because you talk about lucid dreaming. That's something I have not learned or tried to experience, but that's my experiences with dreams so far. That was gorgeous. I feel the same way. I don't know how many alternate universes we're having this conversation, in, but I like all of them. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, that's really, I, I think that, that that, you know, your sense of awareness there and the way you express that about all the Andes yeah, it's really, I, that's a pretty intuitive transcendent awareness. And I think that's like, what a great statement that is, yeah, for practice. Like, that's really gorgeous. So I think that, you know, the, and Ken would even talk about like, you know, intelligence is marked by the ability to hold perspectives, right? The more perspectives an individual can hold, the greater the intelligence. Mine, yours, ours, right? Collectively, you know, where does it go? How do people interpret it? Where is it being felt, you know, felt, etc. Like God's perspective, it's, you know, that, you know, what's even inside of me, what's, you know, one drive is emotional, one's intellectual, one's vocational, one's evolutionary, you know, and the more we can be aware integrally, right, of all those perspectives, right, the greater kind of intelligence that we're operating in the world. And the way that you said all these Andes, I think, indicates that as a wonderful indicator for you know a practice of saying wow there's unlimited numbers of me but let's say at least a dozen or something or a few right and how can any situation turn out right and it's a great way to think about a day yeah because then you start thinking about what am I going to choose to do and you think well, well look I could go to this party what's going to happen there or I could work on this or I could go exercise or I could go read this or be with this person and wow if there was a bunch of me doing all these things which is the one I want to be the most and there's not a right or wrong answer, and that's important to know. But the good, the correct way, if you will, in terms of right path, wrong path, right, is go with the one you want to be, right? And the one you want to be is not always the one you want to do, right? The one you want to do might be go to the party, or it might be read the book, whatever. But the one you want to be, that's the one to, to go with. And I think that's, that's, you know, in the same way, and sometimes they agree, you know, sometimes the one you want to be is the way you want to go and what you want to do but like when grace and grit came up i didn't choose it really it chose me you know like i 
I'd read Ken's work. We had met, we'd become close. He, you know, doesn't give a lot of interviews and he didn't then. And he gave me one for my documentary film so generously. And then, and then Grace and Grit came up later, you know, and I'd asked him about it at the time. I said, this would make such an amazing movie. And someone else had the rights, you know, a very big company here had the rights at that time. And then later it kind of came and I was thinking about it and I thought, oh my God, it was inside of me. And I was like, something like, it was nonverbal, but something like, I, I have to make this. And I emailed him and I asked him about it. Like, what's the story with Grace and Grit? Where is it with the option and who owns it? And he, he was kind of like, let me check. And then he got back to me and there was a possibility there. And then I, I just felt all the energy going that direction. And it's not that I did want to do it or didn't want to do it, but I thought, wow, if I achieve that, that's really something, you know, that's really something to bring into the world. And that's worth dying for, meaning that's worth living for, right? That's worth the price of the candle. So I think that statement about, you know, I'm dreaming and all these different Andes are like closing some chapter and that chapter looks different in every experience of every world that Andy's in. One is about letting go of high school or something there. And in another world, it's that version of Andy driving past something else. But absolutely, I think that that, that deep awareness of driving past that in this life, in this world, also implies moving past it in the other existence yeah and very much so very strong on that on that on that path because and i can even you know i can even express it in very actual terms uh when you know jung talks about archetypes and joseph campbell expresses that as like the kind of foremost writer about archetypes you know kind of after jung and myth really dreams and archetypes therefore bubble up you know from the subconscious and from the gut without specific shape and visage. And then we, the conscious mind attaches avatars to those, to that content in order to make sense of it. So you'll use a spider or the car you saw the day or high school or whatever to process something, but it's really just the content. If you take all that stuff out of it, it's really just consciousness in its rawest form, right? And so if you're getting over, let's say, or passing through or moving through some blockade or something or some rite of passage and, and some experience, let's say for you in high school, something you experienced, really, it doesn't matter, right? What it is, high school, what it looks like, what the thing looks like. It's really like, if you think just on an energetic level, right? It's just this energy that's transforming, yeah? And that's archetypal and that's mythic. That's mystical then going forward, right? That's going beyond. And, you know, and that that sort of beautifully dovetails back into the beginning of our conversation about kind of life and, and well, you go and you die and, and so what, right? Because it is really just this energetic force that's being, you know, perpetuated forward and outward. And, um, you know, the perpetuation of that force is a play. Yeah. And, and it's a self-aware play. And it finds self-awareness, right, through each other, you know, through intimacy. And then even individually alone through kind of just feeling it, you know, in the same way you felt the bug in your house. You know, I, I put a pin on all this. I met Joseph Campbell when I was a boy at a moonrise in Hawaii, in Waimanalo, where he and his late wife, Jean Erdman, lived before he passed, before they both passed. And um, I was a boy, I was a kid, and I didn't know who he was. My father took me to this moonrise, and we met, and he had this impact on me. I didn't, he shook my hand, and he, I actually ran into him on the path uh, in the middle of the night, going down the beach with my father, and he said hello to my father, and he I met him and then we left and that was it, right? And But that night he was talking about synchronicity. So then many, 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 many years later, after long after he's passed, because I was a little kid when he passed, I went to go see his wife, Jean Erdman, at her 
home on Diamond Head in Honolulu in Hawaii. And, um, you know, I, 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 she has this sort of mini museum uh, devoted to kind of myth and Hawaii and Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and such. And I was like looking through stuff and I was like, can I look at like this, like something called me to kind of open this closet, right? And I was like, can I look in, in, in there? She was like, sure, Sebastian. And I open up and I remember that night, Joseph Campbell, Joe Campbell was wearing this Aloha shirt. And I open up that closet and there's that shirt, you know? And I thought decades of so many years have gone by and something is totally different. And yet something is exactly the same. And that's it, <laughs> you know? That's the dance across the night sky through the stars that we all are. You know, that's that's that synchronicity. That's the awareness of this of this spectacular play that's unfolding through us, between us, around us, beneath us, beyond us. I want to sort of share this last sort of experience that I've had and get your read and perspective on it as I'm sort of trying to unpeel this sort of onion. A year ago, I was sort of having a conversation with my dad. He talked about how when I was young, I used to cry all the time. And my mum would take me to the doctor and the doctor would have no idea why I would cry. My dad said that he thought the reason I cried all the time was that I was unhappy to be brought into this world, this family. You know, maybe because, you know, it was like a more lower income family. It wasn't the best sort of um, situation, but he thought I was crying because... I was not happy. And when he shared that, I was like, wow. Like I always was an angry kid. I was always like, if I couldn't get a math question, I was angry at myself. I was angry at the world. And I was like, wow. Like I, I do remember being very angry when I was a child. And then sort of many years passed by. And then last year I was in New Zealand. I was sort of sitting next to this Hindu priest. And I was like, could you give me a Hindu name? He was like, yeah, sure. And he looked at me, I gave him my name, and he said, your name is Amma, which is like the male version of Amaji. And Amma means immortal. And then another string of connections happened. I was like, wow. Like, I do feel like that the moment I was born, I was like, man, here we go again. I'm going to have to learn how to speak. I'm going to have to learn how to communicate. I'm going to have to learn how to meet people and learn how to swim, archer, sail, and, and pick up all these skills all over again and, and go through this, this journey of life. And then recently in Mongolia, I was talking to this lady and she was talking about how God is from within and, you know, people go through life again, reincarnating again and again. And until you can really sort of tap into that God from within, do you really break free from this cycle of sort of constant reincarnation? And when she said that, I was like, wow, like, man, I do feel like I'm getting close. This may or may not be the last reincarnation, but each time I'm I'm getting closer, I'm building enough skill sets to, to, to discover that whatever that is, to, to stop this constant cycle. And each time I get a bit closer, each time I, I, I get born, and I'm like, here we go again. And this is sort of where I'm at right now. And I don't know, maybe in a year's time, I'll have another incident that ties things together again. But yeah, that's something I really wanted to share just after having this conversation with you, Sebastian. It was a beautiful expression. I really enjoyed that. I appreciate it. And the um, that sense of getting off the dharmic wheel, right? You know, like leaving samsara, yeah? And um, awakening, yeah? And that like in the very, you know, kind of Buddhist 
sense, right? You know, if you if you fast forward life like a hundred years, or let's say a thousand years, or let's say a million years, or let's say a hundred million years, or let's say a trillion years, or let's say like, you know, essentially you go so many trillions of years in the future, right? I mean, it, it's really God experiencing that through all consciousness, through all sentience, and so then therefore through all people too. And so I think it happens at the same time. The whole thing is robust and complex and outrageous and majestic as it is, and turns back in on itself and then starts again, like the in-breath and the out-breath, right? So just again, again, again. And each breath is different. Like when we are sit down at the beach and we listen to the waves hitting the shore, you know, and each wave has a different sound, but they all sound identical also, you know, and so much so that when we sit down at the shore and we we are talking, let's say, to someone and we hear that, at first it's so right there in our field of awareness, but then after a while it disappears because that's the sound we came out of. At some point, it's just, it's, it's background. We don't hear it anymore, you know? And so in that way, at some point, life becomes just background. We don't hear it anymore because we've done it so many times, so many hundreds or thousands or millions trillions of times and i think that's the exercise for god it's this expression of manifestation and separateness you know and then againness you know and so i think that the you know the the buddhist expression of that is gorgeous you know your expression of that is is, is gorgeous and i and i think that you know the pathway is to say hey you know some moments i want to exit the life it dovetails back also at the top of our conversation and other moments no i want to be right here in the samsara right like that's instead of the buddha that's the bodhisattva right you know the, the, the that's you know bodhisattva the lord who looks down the lord who comes down you know who comes back down again in other words to awaken everyone else right the bodhisattva like i've reached the point where i'm ready to exit samsara but i can't leave yet because i gotta i gotta help some other people out i gotta give some more you know i gotta reduce some more suffering before i go right you know and i think what's important you know in the in the kind of um sense that we have this uh sense of morality yeah right that's beyond morality because it's not about good or bad or right or wrong it's just about play and awareness and then when we when we feel that awareness like the same way i like i love the way you said oh my god i learned to swim again i learned to talk again like oh my god of course i'm angry you know like i've done this already enough <laughs> you know that's cool you know and i think that's appropriate and that dovetails back into the monopoly game too where it's like okay mm. I'm gonna cling on a little bit, let go a little bit, and like, all right, yeah, fuck it, roll the dice, you know, let's jump in there and do the thing again, you know, because the implication, right, is really for life, you know, like you, you know, we look at the way uh, life extrapolates, like it just in our fingerprints, you know, like it's pretty amazing, it's pretty remarkable, like you, you cut your finger and then, you know, pretty severely, and then not too long later, like the fingerprint starts to match up again, right, and so you did that. And you match those fingerprints without ever thinking about it. You just did that. You just healed without doing a thing, right? So that's coming through us all the time. And it implies, you know, in the very way, like the Bhagavad Gita at the core level, you know, out of the Mahabharata is it's going to go again. It goes again. Cry or not cry. Laugh or not laugh. It's going. We're sailing. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Sebastian. Thank you so much for your time today. This is such a beautiful conversation. Sebastian, where can people find more about you and sort of get more Sebastian? Thank you. Um, Instagram, I don't use a lot of social media, but I like Instagram. I, I return all my messages on there at some juncture. Sebastian Siegel with a digit one at the end. Sebastian Siegel one. Twitter, just Sebastian Siegel. 
and uh, Grace and Grit in the U.S., Amazon, Apple, same thing in Canada, uh, internationally, mostly on Netflix uh, is a good one. Um, and if anyone's in California and they want to come to a workshop or to my practice here, I invite that. I hold some different, very interesting think tanks. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sebastian. I had so much fun on this podcast. It was, it was definitely a massive onion and I had nowhere to start. I was definitely out of my depth and wit because you just have so much experience and we sort of just sort of, you know, we, we hit the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, it was definitely a challenge for me, but I'm glad I was able to sort of slowly ease into it and figure my way out through this conversation. So thank you for being so patient. And yeah, I, I appreciate this conversation. I, I really do too. And thanks for your grace and your and your courage and your instincts and your intuition and for what you're doing. And I hope we get to do it again, please. I'd love that. Guys, this is the end of the podcast. I had a blast today. Hopefully you guys got some value. And I'll see you guys next week with another episode. Peace.